Here's what I'm excited about today. Because I'm excited to share with you a tale as old as time. True as it can be. They were barely even friends. And then somebody bends. Unexpectedly. Now it was just a little change. Small to say the least. Both were a little scared. Neither one was prepared. Beauty and the... Y'all have seen the movie. Yeah. Of course you have. It's one of the best movies ever. And we love this story. But I have to wonder. And here's what I want you to do is wonder with me. What would have happened to the beast if beauty never came to the castle? Never came to live with the one who was lost. Now we all know the story. There was a time when the young prince who lived in his castle had a handsome face. And the palace he reigned over was a dream. But that was before the curse. That was before the darkness fell over the prince's home and his heart. The darkness changed everything. And so the prince hid. He wanted nothing to do with the outside world. And they wanted nothing to do with him. He was left alone with his glistening snout and his curly tusks, and his one huge bad mood that he took with him everywhere throughout the castle. But all of that began to change when the girl arrived. And she brought patience that made, interestingly enough, the beast patient. And she brought joy that seemed to boost his joy. And she brought love that opened his heart to love. But what if she hadn't come? That's really the question I want to ask this morning. What would have happened if the beast never had met the beauty? Even more, what would have happened if she did come and hadn't cared? Hadn't been patient? Hadn't reached out? I don't think anybody would have blamed her, would we? I mean, come on. He was such a beast, hairy and drooling and grouchy and roaring at something or somebody all the time. And she was so beautiful, stunningly gorgeous, contagiously kind. If ever two people lived up to their names, it was beauty and the who? Beast. And nobody, not me, and I don't think you, nobody would have blamed her or thought less of her if she hadn't cared. But she did. Now, the takeaway from the story is simply this. Because... Beauty loved the beast. The beast became more beautiful. Now, Disney wasn't the first to tell this story. (laughs) As a matter of fact, they stole it. They borrowed it, at least, from God's story, which isn't a fairy tale. It's absolutely true. Amen? And it's our story because there is, can I say this, a little beast in all of us. Now, the scriptures tell us that hadn't always been true. There was a time when humanity's face was beautiful and the palace was pleasant. But that was before the curse. That was before the darkness slithered its way into the garden and was invited into the hearts of Adam and Eve. And the curse fell on them. And they hid. And ever since the curse came, here's what the scripture says, we've been different. Beastly, 
ugly, angry, defiant. We do things that we know we shouldn't and we wonder, why in the world do I do that? And I'm a little embarrassed to tell you, the beastly part of me showed itself in a way that I don't think I've ever shared publicly in any occasion anywhere. It was three weeks before my senior prom, and I hadn't asked anybody to officially to be my prom date. But I was kind of, sort of, unofficially dating somebody who I knew was expecting me to ask her. Now, nothing was official, no rings had been exchanged, anything like that. We'd gone out a few times, but I knew that Robin was hoping that I would ask her to the prom. But then Angie Luck from Alabama moved in. Just two months before school was out, I couldn't believe it. While the move was horrible for her, and that's a story for another time, it seemed like destiny for me. Angie Luck was a beauty. She was gorgeous by anyone's standards. And she was in two of my classes, so I had a chance to see that up close and personal, especially in English class because she sat right next to me. I'm telling you, it was destiny. She'd been a cheerleader at the school that she had last attended. Did I mention she was pretty? Times have changed since I was in high school, but the requirements for being a cheerleader have it. Number one, you have to be able to do the splits. You have to do a backflip, and you have to be stunning. She was all three in a capable way, if you get my drift. And she didn't have a prom date at all. You see, all the studs who normally would have asked an Angie girl would have been lined up to get her to go with them, were taken. They'd already asked their girls, and so the only ones left who hadn't asked Angie were the duds. <laughs> I qualified, and I was also a bold dud, and so I asked her, and you know what? She said, yes. Who said no? <laughs> she said yes, much to the surprise of me and the entire school. And she went with me, and we had a great time. Everybody was thrilled for me, except Robin. I know that because she gave me a note the day after the prom that let me know she was brokenhearted and felt betrayed. And all of that was summed up in a one-word letter she dropped off in my locker. It simply said, jerk. <laughs> now, I've looked up jerk in the Greek. It means beast, if you haven't looked. And she was right. I knew immediately when Angie said yes that I was being a beast to Robin. But I knew I would never have a chance to date a cheerleader from Georgia again, right? And we weren't officially dating. I mean, we'd gone out a couple of times, but no rings, no, no promises. No, that's just how a beast rationalizes his beastly behavior. Now, I did marry the band Sweetheart of 1978 and Burnett High School. Yep, the one and only. She was spending some time with Gail Parrish, I mean with Ann Parrish. And Ann found me last Sunday and she said, how in the world did you ever get her to marry you? And I said, have you ever heard the story of Beauty and the Beast? That's true. Now, I can tell all of you that hugely beastly moment in my life. For one reason, I know you've had yours, every single one of you. The beast in you brought out some of the worst in you, as a matter of fact, some so beastly you would never share it 
in any situation, public or not. And it's not as if the beast's impact on our lives is done, is it? Because this beast continues to try and bully his way into every decision of my life almost every single day. How about you? And if you're like me, you're still stunned sometimes by the choices that you make with the things that you say and the things that you do, wondering, how in the world would I do that? Well, here's why. Because it's beastly. When I look back at my senior prom, I still can't believe I did that. And although it's got some humorous parts to it, I'm very ashamed of that. The scripture tells me I'm not alone. The guy who wrote nearly one-third of our New Testament, Paul, said this. I do not do what I want to do. Sometimes I do the very things I hate. Can you say the same? I can Paul and Jimmy aren't the only people who've ever wrestled with the beast from within. As a matter of fact, it is hard to find a page in our Bible in which the beast wrestling with a person isn't present. There's King Saul's beastly jealousy chasing David all over the kingdom. There are Shechem's beastly lust stealing Diana's innocence. Then there's Diana's brother's beastly vengeance urging her brothers to murder Shechem and his friends. Then there's Herod's beastly paranoia murdering Bethlehem's toddlers. Then there's Judas's beastly greed selling out Jesus for a couple of pieces of silver. Then there's Pilate's beastly weakness to peer pressure, giving the order to kill a man even when he knew he was innocent. For a grouping of pages called the Good Book, it still stuns me that there still seems to be so much bad in the book. It's not because the author's bad. It's because the people in it are. They're beastly. And to think that Jesus came to our castle willingly, knowing in spite of his goodness, in spite of his desire to help us, that we would inflict upon him all the darkness we could muster and not just hurt him, listen to me, humiliate him. No, that's how big a beast we have in us. When Jesus is arrested by the Romans, Matthew, one of his disciples, decided to write down how beastly we human beings can be. Here's part of his record. After Jesus was flogged by Pilate, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe around him, and after braiding a crown of thorns, they stuck it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. And kneeling down before him, they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. And they spat on him. And took the staff that was in his hand and struck him repeatedly with it in his head, on his head. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of his robe and put his clothes back on him. And then they led him away to be crucified. Now, that little vignette there, none of it was necessary. The soldier's assignment was pretty simple. Take the Nazarene to the hill and crucify him. But some real tough guys had another idea. They wanted to have some fun first, and so these strong, rested, armed soldiers gathered around this nearly exhausted, near-beat-to-death rabbi and continued to beat him and mock him even more. 
Now the scourging came by way of an order. So did the crucifixion. However, the mocking and the second beating and the spitting was by choice. By beastly choice. You ever been spit on? I have. You haven't? I hope you don't ever. It's terrible. It doesn't hurt. Because spitting isn't meant to hurt, not the body. It's meant to hurt your soul. It's meant to degrade you. It's meant to humiliate you. That's what spitting on someone else is supposed to do. It's meant to take another person who maybe looks similar to you and make them look small in the moment and make you look bigger. Have you ever done that? I have too. Maybe you've never spewed saliva on somebody before, but there's a good chance you've spat on their reputation with the way you've slandered them behind their backs, the way you've gossiped about them, with the innuendo you snuck into a conversation or two. You may not have spat in their face, but you've spat in their heart with your racial slurs and your jokes about their color or their nationality. Or you rolled your eyes in arrogance in their face. Let me ask it this way. Have you ever made somebody feel bad so you could feel good? Yeah, me too. Rather beastly, isn't it? That's what the soldiers did to Jesus. And listen to what Jesus says about that when you do the same to each other. He says we're doing it to him. In Matthew 25 and verse 40, he says, I assure you that when you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Wow, that one stings. God lets us know how we treat others is how we treat Jesus. And you say, oh, come on, Jim, that can't be. That's, that's a little bit much, isn't it? Well, don't take my word, take his. And face with me the reality that there is a beastly, beastly thing living inside us. Every single one of us that urges us, convinces us, motivates us. Now, does it make us, but does try to utterly provoke us to do and say things that surprise even us. You've done that. I know you have. I've done that. And when you reflected back on it, you said, how did that come out of my mouth? How did I do that? I'm capable of that. What got into me? Well, God says, I can, I can give you its name. S-I-N, which spells sin. That's its name. And God asks us to take an honest look inside each of us and admit there's something bad. There's something beastly within each of us. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, the Bible says we are by nature children of wrath. That came from someone who killed Christians. That's how the beast manifested itself in his life. Then there's this from Psalms 36 and verse 1. Sin lurks deep in the heart of the wicked, forever urging them on to evil deeds. That came from a king, a Jewish king who was an adulterer and a murderer in a matter of weeks. It's not that we can't do good. We do do good. It's just that we can't keep from being bad. That's what God's trying to reveal about the human 
person. Though we're made in the image of God, we're fallen. We're corrupt, every single one of us to the core. Paul's going to say it this clearly. There's nobody who's righteous. (laughs) Not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. And let me ask this question. Would we all agree to that? No, we wouldn't. Because here's the truth. Some of us think, compared to everybody else, I'm a pretty decent person. Regardless of what God says about you, you still think by looking around, you're a pretty decent person, so before God, you must be okay. Well, the truth is a pig might say the same thing, especially those he's gathered around at the trough with. I'm as clean as anybody around here, right? But compared to we humans, a pig needs some help, right? But we humans compared to God, that needs some help. Even more drastic than a pig compared to a human. A human being compared to God. Here's what God says about our good things. They're like filthy rags before him. Not that they're not good, not that they can be meaningful, but compared to his holiness, our goodness is like filth. You don't have to believe that, but it's God trying to speak into our lives and trying to explain why you do some of the things you do and why people around us do some of the things that they do and try to move from that perspective into the better part of the story that says it doesn't have to end there with the beastly part of us in us. Friend, we've got to understand the standard for sinlessness isn't found in the pig troughs of the world. It's found at the throne of heaven. God himself is the standard, and he says we're beastly. And the moment that we admit that and and confess along with him that that's true, we begin to be set free. The French writer Michel, I don't know how you say her last name, Montaigne, said this, There is no man who is so good who... Were he to submit all of his thoughts and actions to the law, would not deservingly hang ten times in his life. Boy, I read that this week and I thought, that's, that's just not true. That's true of me. I can attest to that. Because my deeds are that ugly. My actions are that harsh. And even worse, my thoughts. Oh my goodness, my thoughts. We don't do what we want to do. We don't like what we do. And what's worse is, this is the worst, we can't change. The Bible doesn't just stop at saying that we're a mess, that we're beastly, but it says we can't change on our own. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, here's what the scripture says. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and it doesn't submit to God's law. And then listen to this, indeed it can't. Impossible. So that presents a problem. Houston, the Hebrew writer says this, we've got a problem. We're not holy, and anyone whose life is not holy will never see the Lord. So what are we going to do with all this? I don't want to be left in this beastly stance any more than the beast did for beauty. Okay, here's we go to the good news. For a moment, I want you to allow the spit of the soldier 
that's on Christ's face to symbolize your filth that's in your heart. Jesus does something with both of them. He carries them to a cross. Hundreds of years before the event occurred, the Spirit spoke through the prophet Isaiah predicting it would happen. I did not hide my face from mocking or from the spitting, he says in Isaiah 56. Now I would have, promise you. But Jesus welcomed it and he mingled it with his blood and his sweat and the presence of our filth together as one humanity. Now God had other choices. He made sure his son was offered wine for his throat and so why not a towel for his face? Simon carried his cross for Jesus but he didn't mop up the cheek and the spit that was on it. Angels were a prayer away but they, they could have taken away the spit but he didn't have them do it either. Why? Could it be that he sees the potential for beauty in all of us beasts? That the image of God that we're born with, although it's crusted over with our sin and our arrogant rebellion, that image is still there? And here's where God's story and our story part. Not the same. Let me take you back one more time to the beauty and the beast story. All she has to do, we know from the story, is this, is to tell the beast... I love you. And things will change. This is where our story and Beauty and the Beast part. Because in God's true story, the beauty does so much more than just say, I love you. He becomes the beast so that the beast can become the beauty. Go ahead, next slide. The beauty becomes the beast. So that the beast can become the beauty. In Galatians 3 and verse 13, Paul says, We like Adam were under a curse, but Jesus changed places with us and put himself under that curse so that our relationship with the writer of the story could be restored and our beauty be restored. Now let me end with this one more time. What if... The beauty had never come. What if the beauty had not cared? Then you and I would have remained a beast. That's just the truth. But the beauty did come. The beauty did come. And he did care. And the sinless one took on the face of a sinner so that we could take on the face of a saint. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a tale as old as time. A tune as old as song. Bittersweet and strange. Finding that you can change. Learning that you were wrong. And that's okay. If you understand how he was right and can make you right. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning... And it's hard for us to, to admit that we're beastly. It's hard to look into our hearts and our, our past and to see some of the things that we have been capable of saying and doing. But Father, we have rallied today. We've come together not, not to celebrate basketball games, not to celebrate shooting capabilities, but to celebrate moving out of our beastliness into your beauty. That's what we've come to do. 
And you made that possible. And so we just want to say thank you. Of all the triumphs we celebrate this weekend, we want to come together as one voice and say thank you for coming here and getting in this with us. And not just saying you loved us, but showing us by giving your life. And we want to continue this worship service by lifting up our voices in song and by, by coming around the table and remembering that together as a family because we want to be changed. We didn't come here just to talk about an event. We want the event to be in us and to help mold and shape us into the beauty that you are. And we don't want you to stop until you do. Send us out, Father, so that we can take that beauty then to all those around us who don't even understand the beast that's within them. We're committing to that, Father, because you have so loved us, and we've come to say thank you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said.